this morning leading us in song. And now we worship not only through song and not only through prayer and not only through the reading of the word, but also through the preaching of the word. I'd like to invite you to turn with me to the book of Revelation chapter 18. Chapter 18. And together we're going to examine the 24 verses found in Revelation 18 together as we partner together for the gospel. While you're turning there, I'll give you a bit of an overview of the lay of the land. Beloved, God brings benefits. He brings benefits. You don't have to be a follower of the one true God in order to reap the benefits of God while you live on this earth. God created man. Man was tempted into trying to maintain God's benefits on this earth without honoring God as God. The ultimate man, Jesus Christ, came to give man an opportunity for salvation from this wicked predicament. And we as men and women, as men in summary, must respond by receiving Christ's good news gospel for ourselves. Then and only then, at that point, God gives man the right to become children of his, heirs of righteousness, to be his people forevermore. So God brings benefits. But the Bible that you probably hold in your hand or that you have a copy of or that you'll read from the screen on today, the Bible is a long story that may be summed up as ungodly men and women trying to maintain God's benefits without God himself. Revelation 18 declares that this will not last long. That worldliness destroys itself from within and that God is faithful to His people. Scripture warns against the outcomes of worldliness and warns the believers for the purpose of our witness to the watching world and for the purpose of our perseverance as God's people in the faith. This is grace. Warnings are grace. Revelation 18 issues a series of warnings. Verses 1 to 8 will help the witness of the church. Rightly understood, verses 9 to 19 will give a eulogy for the world's worldliness. And verses 20 to 24 will help the perseverance of God's people. Worldliness is a real problem for God's people. And it's an unavoidable reality for the ungodly. So today, as an act of grace, as God's people, be warned three things that we'll find from those three subsets of Scripture this morning. First, be warned, don't partner with the world. Second, be warned, don't admire the world. Thirdly, be warned, don't doubt the fate of the world apart from Christ. And I'll say it again in short summary so that you can follow in verses 1 to 8 we're about to read. 
don't partner. In verses 9 to 19, we're about to read, don't admire. And in verses 20 to 24, we're about to read, don't doubt. Don't doubt their fate, the world's fate. Now I invite you to hear from Revelation 18, 1 to 24, a lengthy reading. And it seems wise for us to stand for the reading of God's word. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues, for her sins are heaped high as heaven. And God has remembered her iniquities, Pay her back as she herself has paid back others, and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning, since in her heart she says, I sit as queen, I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. For this reason her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire, for mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They'll stand far off in fear of her torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her. Since no one buys their cargo anymore, cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, and kind, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle, and sheep, horses, and chariots, and slaves, that is, human souls. The fruit for which your soul longed has gone from you. And all your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. The merchants of these wares who gained wealth from her will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud, Alas, alas, for the great city that was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels and with pearls. For in a single hour all this wealth has been laid waste. And all shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors, and all whose trade is on the sea stood far off and cried out as they saw smoke of her burning. What city was like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads as they wept and mourned, crying out, Alas, alas, for the great city where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth. For a single hour, in a single hour, she has been laid waste." Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and 
threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon the great city be thrown down with violence, and will be found no more. And the sound of harpists and musicians, of flute players and trumpeters, will be heard in you no more. And a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. And the light of the lamp will shine in you no more. And the voice of the bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth, and all nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her... Babylon was found the blood of prophets and saints and of all who have been slain on the earth. And may God bless the reading of his word and administer grace unto the hearers. You may be seated. One says Babylon represents the world system as a seducer of the ungodly. So Babylon, that was described as a prostitute, in chapter 17, whose fallenness was unequivocally pronounced in chapter 14. Babylon, the world, is a shameful, subtle, seductive, satanic, sexual, sensual influence of a world system. Babylon is the world system as the seducer of the ungodly. There have been several of them in world history. Worldly systems have existed, will exist, and exist now. And so we see first today, in our first subset of verses, in verses 1 to 8, how we ought not partner with Babylon. We ought not partner with the world system that seduces and lures in the ungodly. Let's look at it. Look at verse 1. It says in verse 1, After this I saw another angel coming down from heaven. So John hears from another angel. You may recall from earlier sermons, the apostle John is now an old man likely in the A.D. 90s. Because of the oppressiveness of the empire in which he lived, Rome had thrown him into jail, essentially for being a faithful Christian, for spreading the gospel. They had thrown him into jail on a prison island called Patmos. And so John, on the Lord's Day, we learn from the first chapter of Revelation, is caught up in the Spirit, and the Lord gives him this joy as an old man, of essentially penning the last words of our canon of Scripture, the book of Revelation. Now, there are many revelations, plural, in the Bible, but as I've told you many times over the course of this series, to correct a common mistake when referring to the book of Revelation, it is a book singularly. So refer to the book of Revelation in the singular, Revelation. Refer to the Bible as a whole, as Revelation, as well, with a little r. But in in truth, there are many revelations of Scripture throughout in Scripture. It's a book of books. It's a biblia of biblias. It's the book of books. That's what the Bible is. There's 66 books within it. And so we see God carrying along Scripture writers as they wrote down the pages of Scripture that you now have. And perhaps never more do we see the continuity and congruency of Scripture than in Revelation 18. So John is given this unlikely vision from another angel, elucidating and expanding upon the seven bold judgments that followed the seven seals and trumpets. And so when John hears from this angel, this angel actually, as angels do, reflects the great authority of God Almighty. You need to know about the character of God this morning. He is a mighty force. He is the mighty force. The earth is made bright with His glory when it cascades through this angel. Verses 1 and 2 and 4 and 5 and 6 and 8 and 20 and 24 
tell us things like what I'm about to say. God's bright. He's glorious. He's mighty. He's relational with His people. He calls my people. He remembers. He doesn't forget like some of us. He's justice as a judge is what he pursues. He is vocal. Look at verse 2. This mighty voice from heaven. He communicates. He's not ambivalent toward the happenings of earth. And he proclaims in this instance, this once prosperous Babylon is now going to be no more than a dwelling place for the desolate. A dwelling place for demons. When a civilization falls apart and crumbles, and inhabitants depart, wild animals take over. You know, I mean, we put down the coyotes, and the, if there's something that comes through the town of Mount Vernon where we are standing right now, or I'm standing, you're sitting, if something comes through at night or something scary, if there's a wild dog or something, we take care of things whenever it comes through. You don't just come through and wreak havoc in this town, right? Civilization we tend to take for granted. But it is an allowed blessing from our Creator. And as one person said, civilization is an achievement. Civilization is the result of a lot of labor. And we ought to appreciate civilization and labor for God to build culture. Not against God and not in opposition to God's glorious principles and purposes. We ought not stake our hopes to culture by no means, but we ought to be careful about our interactions with the powers of this age, even as we value the fact that the town in which we live is not filled with jackals and unclean birds and absolute chaos. God has given us the capacity as we live here to bring civilization, to bring order. The Bible says that God is not the God of chaos and disorder, but of peace. And he grounds his understanding of the role relationship between man and woman, as is recorded in 1 Corinthians 14, in his character attribute of order and peacefulness rather than disorder and chaos. Judges talks about how chaos is when every person does what's right in their own eyes. There is no common collective wisdom. There's no common morality, no shared commandments. It's just you're a jury unto yourself. The luxury of this world system is highly seductive, though. It's highly seductive. And you will not resist unless you intentionally resist. You won't resist the seductive powers of the Babylon of this current age unless you intentionally resist. I'm reminded in another book of the Bible how we are urged to intentionally resist the devil that he might flee from us. Here John or here James rather talk about this in the 4th chapter of the book titled James. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly. You ask to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. You see how God can use adultery both to talk about actual adultery in a marriage, but also adulterating against God, you see, which is the predominant use when we're talking about Babylon. He calls them an adulterous people because when they pray, they don't even know how to pray with shame and they don't know how to pray for anything other than their own selfish desires. We certainly ought to pray for ourselves, but not only just for ourselves and for our comfort, 
but for the well-being of all God's people, right? And for the conversion of the ungodly. The Lord has taught us to pray, and we ought to learn from Him. James says to go on, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? What a contrast created in Scripture. We don't like those contrasts. But that kind of a contrast is clear from cover to cover in Scripture and will be clear on the last day. Though the wheat and the tares grow up together in this current epoch, on the last day, God knows the wheat from the tares and He will judge with absolute precision. He knows the difference. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you not suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says He yearns jealously over the Spirit that He has made to dwell in us? Do you know that God is jealous for you? That the Spirit in you is to be obeyed and considered and followed, that we shouldn't violate Christian conscience in our actions? And this would be a hopeless cross-reference if it didn't say the next phrase, but He gives you more grace. He gives you more grace as a believer. He cares for you. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Be humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God, even through a teaching like this from Scripture. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Be intentional about your resisting of the devil. Draw near to God by the gathering of his people and by setting aside time to consider his word. Draw close to God and he will he'll draw close to you. Cleanse your hands, sinners, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Don't be double-minded. Be singularly minded about the affections of Christ for you. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. And I think unless... You humble yourselves before the Lord, and then He'll exalt you. Don't seek your own exaltation. Exalt the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Exalt Christ each and every day of, of your life, and especially when we gather on Sunday. And, and watch Him return you to your humility, a sense of purpose, a sense of meaning. But seek to exalt yourself and, and watch yourself get knocked down. Watch yourself get beat down. A lot of our problems could be addressed if we simply would stop it with the self-exaltation. And if we would look by obedience to the Spirit to Christ's exaltation. Amen? The third verse back in Revelation 18 is where we need to pick back up. I would urge you to glance at Revelation chapter 18, verse 3. It says, For all nation have, nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxury living, of her luxurious living. So Revelation 18.3 says that the, what the world offers you is appealing. It's intoxicating. We can get consumed with it. Every nation is affected by the allure of this world system, offering the benefits of God's creation, like I outlined from the beginning, devoid of worship of the one true God. Of course, that's not an offer that can be sustained, but it's what the world system offers in the moment. Of course, God will not be mocked in the end, but He's also patient, the Bible says, not willing that any should perish, but that everyone should come to repentance. Revelation 18.3 indicts Babylon for her sexual immorality, her misuse of power, her luxury in living. Later, the indictment in Revelation 18 will include the, the con condemnation of human trafficking, of trading human beings like commodities, and the maiming of saints in verse 24. The shiny outside veneer of Babylon 
is what drives the partnership. And we ought not partner with Babylon. That shiny outside veneer of the partnership with Antichrist is dirty, and the dirty on the inside is what winds up coming out if we get too close to the world system and if we ourselves become worldly in our actions. The end never justifies the means if we take the means of the world to try to accomplish the purposes of God. The mean old Joseph Stalin had a phrase, he said, that sometimes you had to crack a few eggs to make an omelet. Well, that wicked man with the blood of millions upon millions of people on him did not speak the truths of God. God never makes a mistake with who gets cracked. God is always just. And in the end, we will not be celebrating the deaths of the wicked so much as we will be celebrating the faithfulness of God to never make a miscue in civil justice. God offers even the means to our grace. That's what we do on Sunday morning when we take His supper, when we baptize the believers, when we put together a gospel structure to service, when we pray the Word and preach the Word and sing the Word. The Lord judges Babylon. She will be burned up as in a single day, this text says. Her tactics and her plagues and hunger and death and mourning, literally, we're going to see in a minute in verses 9 and following, a eulogy will be visited on her. There is a eulogy for the corporate entity that is Babylon. But more deeply than even the immorality and the power misuse and the luxury of Babylon and the human trafficking and the harming of the saints is the pride that underlies it. She says in verse 7, I said as a queen, I am my own God. This isn't the posture of the church and the effeminate, is it? We're not supposed to speak like this. She says, I, I, am a, I said as a queen, I am my own God. I, I'm not needy like a widow. I can't be toppled. I'm kind of stringing together the intent of those words. I'm too big to fail is another way to string it together. Verse 7 is a damning indictment on this world order because of the pride puffed up in it. And further, Babylon's influence to others was worse than even her private immoral sins. It says in verse 3 that now all the nations follow her. See, sin alone doesn't stay alone. Just like we say about grace, grace alone doesn't stay alone. Grace produces works, right? The, the root of grace produces works in the Christian's life. Well, same with sin. Sin doesn't stay alone. It spreads, and you're responsible for the effect that your sin has on others. We'll see that in our final point this morning. Babylon will get exactly what she deserves, the same about a duplication or a doubling of her iniquity. Babel's allure was to build a tower to heaven and touch the sky. That's what we find in Genesis 11. Now, Revelation, at the end of the Bible, the revelations put together, the end of the Bible reveals that worldly Babylon has reached heaven all right with a tall tower of her sins. Heaped, it says in verse 5, as high as the heavens. Do you see that? Look down at your Bible. Her sins are heaped high as the heavens. They got to heaven all right with a tower of their sins. Note the end of verse 5 there. God has remembered her iniquities. Think about that for a moment. What does God mean when He conveys through His angel to us via the pen of John on the island of Patmos? What does He mean when He says, He remembered her iniquities? Well, this, of course, is God's long memory. Long memory. 
Not like you and I, we tend to be forgetful or just flat out bitter. God has a long and precise memory. It's why when we recall sins from our past, we should confess them because He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. We ought never pretend like our sins don't have an effect on us or somehow God doesn't remember them. The only way in which God forgets our iniquities is when they're covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. And sometimes, even though all of our sins, past and present and future, are covered by the blood of Christ, sometimes the means of assurance comes to us by confessing those sins and being reminded of what God already knew. He doesn't remember them against us anymore. But if we don't have the blood of Christ on our side, God remembers them for sure. And the iniquity of Babylon will be visited back on her by this gloriously bright, totally powerful, vocally warning, relationally concerned, and always remembering God. Verse 4 is the theme of our, first, of our first point here. Come out of her, my people. It's an interesting phrase. It's an imperative verb. Come out of her, my people. It's, he's telling, it's very similar to a phrase in the book of Jeremiah, come out of her, my people. Here he quotes the prophet, I'm sorry, in Isaiah, but later in this text he's going to quote Ezekiel and Jeremiah. It's like a parade of synthesizing the major prophets from the Old Testament with Ezekiel and Jeremiah after Isaiah. Here John records the quotation of this continuity of the canon, your reliable Bible, by telling us in effect, don't partner with the world. Come out of her. It isn't that you... You may be thinking, well, I guess I need to move away. I need to live on a rock somewhere. This is not promoting monasticism. Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plague. It isn't that you have to move away as Lot did from Sodom, or as the Hebrews did from ancient Babylonia after the exile, as the Medo-Persians conquered Babylon. It isn't that you move away to not partner, but that you witness among them without partnering in their rebellion. Well, how do you do that? How do you live there in the midst of the world system, but live as God's people and not people of the harlot, of the prostitute, of Babylon? How do you do that? Well, I think that this text tells us how. It says, live there, but no sexual immorality. Live there, but, but don't harm humans. Certainly not directly, and as far as you have awarenesses, not indirectly. Don't harm humans, whether that's the harming of another human by the killing of the unborn child here, whether it's abroad through policies that promote the killing of unborn children in other countries, no sexual immorality, no harming humans, no profiting from slave labor on another continent or in the kitchens in our hometown. We are to not show favoritism. We are to treat the lowest socioeconomic class as if they are the highest. We are not to use the cargo of the sea, as this text says, without counting the cost of production. So no immorality, no human harm, no neglecting the worship of God is implied here. No opulence, no luxurious living. No living now in pride that God isn't watching or that He doesn't care. He cares deeply how you live in the here and now. He's watching. And any delicacies that you amass, you return thanks to Him. And you don't live as the world 
in worldliness as if other people, it's okay if they suffer, if you crack those eggs to make the omelet of your luxury. It isn't that the things that you have are bad. It's do you have concern for how you got them? Do you have gratitude for the God that gave them to you? And do you have awareness for when things that are unjust was done in order to produce the product in which you claim to observe and value before God? I think this gets into the warnings to the church given to the Gentile church in Acts 15 by the Jewish church. Don't eat meat sacrificed to idols, care about where it came from, and don't participate in sexual immorality. It was all about idolatry, but it was some kind of Johnny Basic information. The warning for the witness of the saints is for the witness of the saints, and it's clear in Revelation 18.4, come out of her, you're my people. Don't take part in her sins unless you want to take part in her plagues. It's a clear warning, and it's for us. So we come out of her, we don't partner in her sins while we're living here. We live with care, and with intentionality, with forethought. We practice spiritual disciplines. We live industriously in our homes and in the church and in our society. But we need to consider further as Christians what worldliness is, what it means to come out of it. And we'll do that in our second point. Before we move on to our second point, I just want to end this first point about not partnering with them with a quote from John Newton. John Newton wrote this in 1778. He said, My dear friend, how industrious is Satan served. I was formerly one of his most active undertempters, not content with running down the broad way which leads to destruction by myself. I wanted to entice others, and had my influence been equal to my wishes, I would have carried the whole human race to hell with me. And doubtless some have already perished, to whose destruction I was greatly instrumental." by tempting them to sin, and by poisoning and hardening them with principles of infidelity. And yet I was spared. When I think of the most with whom I spent my ungodly days of ignorance, I am ready to say, I alone have escaped alive. Surely I have not half the activity and zeal in the service of him who snatched me as a brand out of the burning as I had in service of his enemy. Then the whole stream of my endeavors and affections went one way, Now my desires are continually crossed, counteracted, and spoiled by the sin which dwells in me. Then the tide of a corrupt nature bore me along. Now I have to strive and swim against it. And Newton said, Had my abilities and opportunities been equal to my heart's desire, I would have been a monster of profaneness and profligacy. A common drunkard or harlot is a petty sinner compared to what I once was. I had unabated ambition and wanted to rank in wickedness among the foremost of the human race. And you know the lyric then, Oh, to grace how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. Wonderful is the love of God in giving His Son to die for such wretches as us, is He not? The more vile we are in our own eyes, the more precious Jesus will be to our view. John Newton helps us there. Don't partner with the world. And don't admire the world. Don't sit back in admiration of the world, point number two. John Owen said famously, either you'll be about the business of killing sin or sin will be about the business of killing you. I think we need a larger understanding of sin. I think that a small understanding of sin is why we are given toward worldliness. We are not trained to think of sin so highly unless we are trained in the revelation from God. Sin is a high treason against God. And sin is the very reason that Jesus Christ had to die for our sins. For us, it was our sins. 
Verses 9 through 19 is effectively a eulogy for the world by the people who didn't want God to conquer the worldly subversive system. We see laments or a eulogy given by kings and merchants and shipmasters in that text. I'll not read it all again to you, but just let your eyes glance through verses 9 to 19 in the interest of time and see those sections where you see the king talking, the kings of the earth talking, and then the merchants talking, and then the shipmasters talking in verses 9 and 11 and then 17. The kings and merchants and shipmasters were invested in Babylon's success, or I might rather say they are invested in Babylon's success over and against God's justice. It isn't the civilization that they're providing. It's the way they're providing it as a godless civilization that God takes, he takes it as an affront to his glory. And God isn't just cruelly punishing them. He knows what's behind the so-called successes of those that deal with Babylon. We see this earthly mourning from Babylon's co-conspirators, the statesmen in verse 9 or the sellers in verse 11. Or the shipmasters, like the producers, the workers, the cargo finders in verse 17. It's a commercial enterprise described in chapter 18. And in these verses in particular, we see in verse 9 how the kings admired Babylon. They'd been intimate and luxurious with her. They now cry aloud and deeply. They witness the fall of that great city just as every other great city that turned its back on God. The judgment is just and swift when the judgment comes. Or the merchants in verse 11, now they can't move their cargo. It's stuck out at sea. There's no purchasers. The clothes and building products and food and transportation and war machines and gold and frankincense and myrrh weren't used to adorn Christ as the wise men did, but they were used to adorn self with these wicked merchant men. In fact, they were so willing to sacrifice human souls for selfish gain. This is wickedness, but we have to be awakened to it. And Revelation 18 does that. It wakes us up. Their cravings will be met no more, those who partner with Babylon. Their soul longed not for souls to be well, but to use souls as a means to their betterment so they could live lax and luxurious, so they could pursue licentiousness. The permanency of the loss of Babylon is what's being lamented by these merchants and these salesmen and these producers. It's not that they're lamenting the loss of Babylon itself. There is no honor, as we said before, among thieves. It's the permanency of the loss and of their personal loss that they're lamenting. Their cravings are met no more. The plagues and woes on the enemies of God are now clear for them to see. It's finally snapped into view. Their wealth is laid waste. Their delicacies are gone. Woe to the enemies of God and His people. And these statesmen and these salesmen, the evil among certain in government and business, invite you into their gain. But the payoff is not worth the price, beloved. You are not of this worldly order, beloved. You have a heavenly citizenship, and heaven beckons you through Revelation 18 to come out from them, not to partner with them, and not to buy in to their allure. Do not admire them, number two. Number one was do not partner with them. Their destruction is assured. Just as you as a believer has your salvation assured and secured. These statesmen and salesmen, the next and the producers, form this commercial powerhouse that seems unshakable. It seems too big to fail. But the suddenness of their collapse 
will shock the partners of Babylon and reverberate to them as well. They'll, they'll lament not for the loss of life or liberty, but they lament rather for the loss of their luxury, of the way that they lived. Verse 19 ends this eulogy. There is no love between those who partner with Babylon and Babylon. True love is not found in the world's system. There's nobody to grieve your loss in the world when you die of the world. True love is found in God's salvation. And God never forgets a single, single death of one of His no-name saints. You're going to see that in verse 24. Not a single death. The suddenness and collapse of Babylon is matched only by the declaration of the permanence of her end. We will see that in our third point. But before we move on to our third point, let's consider this admiration for just a moment. I was trying to find a way to, to illustrate this, and I was reading a sermon from David Platt from 2012 on the subject. So indulge in this rather lengthy quote about worldliness. He said, and I quote, My heart is really heavy today. C.J. Mahaney wrote a book titled Worldliness that says, Today the greatest challenge facing Bible-believing Christians is not persecution from the world, but seduction by the world. Charles Spurgeon said in his day words that I'm convinced apply to our day. He said, I believe that one reason why the church of God at this present moment has so little influence over the world is because the world has so much influence over the church. He said, put your finger on any prosperous page in the church's history and you will find a little marginal note that says, in this age, people could readily see where the church began and where the world ended. The reality is we live in a day where you cannot tell where the world ends and the church begins. Study after study after study shows that our lifestyles as professing Christians look just like the world around us. We seem to be just as materialistic, just as sexually immoral, just as self-centered as the world. Our spending patterns are strikingly similar to the world around us. Our giving patterns are strikingly similar to the world around us. At the time of this writing, 6% of Bible-believing American Christians offered consistent tithes and offerings. And this is not just outside of us. We know that we are a people that are focused on ourselves when we're not focused on Christ. The Bible says, or, the, or rather statistics say about the church in defiance to what the Bible says, that we also are sexually immoral. The percentage of professing Christian men who view pornography is virtually the same as non-Christian men. Men have visited pornographic sites last week, last month, last year, and then sat in a church room. And we must not be as likely to have sex outside of marriage, whether we're single or we're married. It doesn't matter. We should not be those people. And the statistics show that God's professing people are sexually immoral in our culture. Sexual activity with someone who is not your spouse is almost just as common among professing Christians as it is among non-Christians in the world. And in marriages, sadly, we're just as likely to divorce as non-Christians, which is a stated reason why people don't get married. They're afraid of getting divorces. It's tragedy upon tragedy. Other studies show that marital abuse is common, maybe just as common amongst professing Christians in our land as non-Christians. In parenting, the, pri the priorities of professing Christian parents for their kids look virtually identical to the priorities of non-Christian parents. We have similar travel patterns, similar teachings, similar entertainments, 
And it's not always that what our kids are getting is bad. It's that our kids aren't getting what they need as well. They spend hours in practices or this or that in video games in front of the TV and minutes in the Word of God or in prayer with their mommies and daddies. And the effect is evident. Somewhere in the neighborhood of 60 to 80% of our kids will leave Christianity behind when they turn 18. And Platt asked his church a decade ago and asked you today, is this acceptable to us? Is it acceptable? Or ought something change? Worldliness must be jettisoned. 1 John 2.15 says, Do not love the world or the things of the world. Period. A world that goes on day by day with people gratifying themselves and indulging themselves and entertaining themselves and exalting themselves without regard for the character or commands of God, that is not a world that we can follow. John is saying in Revelation 18, the church should look different, very different. Our schedule should look different. Our spending should look different. Our marriages should look different. Our parenting, our purity, our possessions, our love, our lives should look very different from the world. We should come out of the world. We should look different. We, we should not admire the world. We should not partner with the world officially in matters of religion and of immorality. Not just for the sake of being different or weird, but because we love God more than we love this world. Can you say that with me under your breath? I love God more than I love this world. I love God more than I love this world. They concluded by saying, ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, this world is full of deceptive attractions. Part of what John marveled at in Revelation 17 and 18 was this alluring picture of what seemed like strength and power and pleasure. The appearance of Babylon was enticing, and almost certainly it was in the first century. Christians would have looked at the strength of Rome and the luxuries of Rome and the pleasures of Rome, and they'd have thought, how can I partner with that without violating my conscience? Is this so bad? That thing looks pretty. In the same way, we 21st century Christians look at the wealth and technology and the things around us and we think, well, this isn't so bad. How can we partner with it? But that cannot be our starting point. Our starting point cannot be, that's not so bad. How do I partner with it? It has to be instead, what does it mean to soon koinoneo, to partner together with God, and then within that fidelity to God, how do I get along in the world in which I live? If we start with the former... We won't get to the latter. If we start with the latter, we will not be so tempted by the former. And the root of all these worldly desires that are described in Revelation 18 is a priority on ourselves instead of the worship and the exaltation of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And even though Rome was still standing in John's day, clearly he's imprisoned by Rome, Rome was pronounced as fallen. Babylon is fallen, is fallen, Babylon could have been a way of talking about Rome or any other global power, any other conspiracy of Antichrist. And so just the same as Rome was still standing but was pronounced as judged, so does any world order today that still stands, is it pronounced as judged by our God today? Psalm 2 says God laughs. He just laughs at the power brokers in this world that think that they're going to build a permanent civilization that reaches up to heaven without him. He has put in germ all of the resources that we need to do great things. That's true. I mean, we can build, we can build aircraft and, and we can build 
We could build entire civilizations, culture, all the things that are adjectivally elucidated in Revelation 18. But God will not let it stand without him because it's an affront to his glory, for one. But for two, it is inside of itself. It's humanly oppressive. It's built on the backs of slavery and of antagonism to the lowest socioeconomic class in the world in any given time frame. Revelation 18 wakes us up, if we let it, to, the inju- to, the, to our complicity in the injustices in this world and causes us to consider where we have gone along with the way things are in a manner that violates Christian conscience. Worldliness overpromises and underproduces, and we are to come out of her, O believer, and trust Christ. Can you say, as the old preacher said, in a world full of overrated pleasures and underrated treasures, you found Christ? Can you say that? Isn't he a greater treasure than any treasure the earth has to offer? Worldliness overpromises and underproduces. Jesus is the pearl of great price. So as we come out from her, we treasure him. And we avoid all the calamities of Babylon's just punishment that will come in the due time. The fruit that her soul desires in verse 14 is unjust and it's taken from her. Possession of wealth, G.K. Beale says, is not the reason for God's judgment of Babylon. Possession of wealth is not. And trust in the, it is trust in the security that wealth brings that's tantamount to idolatry. So the fruit your soul desires, verse 14 talks about, is the fruit of self-aggrandizement rather than concern for neighbor and for the least and worship of God. A few things here. Um, The word world is used 80 times in Revelation, so we have to have a concern for the world. In this crazy, busy world, intentional use of your time may be one of the best things you can do for your fidelity to Christ and, and for your worship. Give time to the worship of the Lord. Come on the Lord's day. Stop following the world in their crazy busyness. How does it end? You know, we're in a hurry. We don't know why. Another thought here within this second point is you're not going to find community by always looking for it. You're going to find meaningful community instead by being in it, warts and all. So if you can't get with this church, pick one and get with it. But don't think that you're just going to keep surveying the land for decades and you're going to find that place where you can actually find community. Stop looking for that silver bullet fix and invest yourself in the the lives of the people and give yourself instead of take for yourself and see that you don't find community by looking for it, but by being in it. Join with us. We invite you to. We want you to. But more than we want you as another number on our role, we want you fulfilled in your worship of Christ in a faithful Bible-teaching church. That's what we want. That's our heart. Consider as parents that constantly enabling your children by allowing the definition of love to be twisted into an excuse for permissiveness, that consider that that actually leads to more harm than good. It's not loving to allow your children to run roughshod over the truths of God. We must discipline them for the purpose of godliness, for the disciplined child is the loved child. Let us not admire the world, and let us not partner with the world, but instead, let us know the world's fate. Don't doubt the world's fate, but let us know the world's fate. Apart from Christ, the world 
is utterly hopeless. I read a daily devotional uh, by Charles Spurgeon. I like old books more than new books. If they've stood the test of time, they seem to be worth the time, you know? And there's one I've referenced earlier this year, Faith's Checkbook by Charles Spurgeon. And this was his May 6th entry during his lifetime. He said, when we see the wicked prosper, we are apt to envy the wicked, or let's say the worldly, or this world system. We're apt to envy them. He said, when we hear the noise of their mirth and our own spirit is heavy, we half think that they have the best of it. This is foolish and sinful, Spurgeon says. If we knew them better, and especially if we remembered their end, we should pity them. The cure for envy lies in living under a constant sense of the divine presence, worshiping God and communing with Him all the day long, however long the day may seem. True religion lifts the soul into a higher region where the judgment becomes more clear and the desires are more elevated. The more of heaven there is in our lives, the less of earth we shall covet. The fear of God casts out envy of men. The death blow of envy is a calm consideration of the future. The wealth and glory of the ungodly are a vain show. This pompous appearance flashes for an hour and then is extinguished. What is the prosperous sinner the better for his prosperity when judgment overtakes him? As for the godly man, his end is peace and blessedness, and none can rob him of his joy. Wherefore, let him forgo envy and be filled with sweet content." I would like to think that Charles Spurgeon was reading not only the Proverbs, but Revelation 18 when he wrote that. Avoid envy of the worldliness of the world system. Avoid partnership and never, ever, ever doubt their end. And it should lead you to pity. Pity the worldly in our day. For if they die outside of Christ, they have absolutely no hope of eternal life with Him. Revelation chapter 18, verses 20 to 24 describes how there's rejoicing in heaven over one great millstone that's thrown into the sea. And that rejoicing, I don't think, that imperative verb rejoice over her, I I don't think that that's over the deaths of the ungodly per se, but over the faithfulness of God, the faithfulness of God to bring ultimate judgment for His people in His Son. In that day, heaven will bring joy to God's people. Verse 20 says that God will have given judgment, and notice the two next words, for you against her. If you'll let it, that's a jarring phraseology. The contrast is what's jarring. This is a eulogy for all the ungodly, unrepentant, unsaved ones in the history of the world, past and present. And it's framed as completely just. We mustn't take joy in the death's of people, but we must take joy in God's faithfulness, His covenant faithfulness with His people. We will see next week in Revelation 19, Lord willing, this continued theme of joy in God's faithfulness through the transliterated word repetitively used, hallelujah, over and over in Revelation 19. So if you read ahead in Revelation 19, you'll see that. All the saints and the apostles and prophets, those that gave us scriptures, they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, the apostles and the prophets. All of them for the unjust deaths on the earth of this world of injustice is full of, and all the saints here, God has given judgment for you against her. Revelation 18, 20b. God is sitting 
in the ultimate heavenly throne room, and he will render a decision as judge, a decision between the wheat and the tares that grew up together, a decision between believers and unbelievers that grew up side by side during our lives, a decision rendered between the godly and the ungodly. And just as Babylon gave those of us with a biblical worldview no place to hide, the judge of this universe will give Babylon no place to hide. The permanent, irreversible, and comprehensive judgment of worldliness is on display in verse 21. There, see there, you'll see there's no more culture. There's no music or food. It's described. There's no arts. There's no building materials going into play. Construction, electricity for light. There's no procreation via the celebration of weddings between bridegrooms and grooms. There's no more deception and sorcery and drug propagation by the so-called great ones of the earth, the statesmen and the salesmen and the producers who had a profitable partnership with Babylon while overlooking human rights and religious liberty and humility in their service. This is what's being described in verses 21, 22, and 23. A friend of mine recently turned me toward a website titled, or it's, it's the handle on it is gracegems.org, G-R-A-C-E-G-E-M-S.org. And I found that site, it's all free, and I found it to be so helpful. And I commend it to you. But front and center on their homepage is their purpose for their website. And it has an app message against man's pride. It says their purpose is to humble the pride of man, to humble the pride of man, to exalt the grace of God and salvation, and to promote real holiness in life and in heart. To humble the pride of man, to exalt the grace of God and salvation, and to promote real holiness holiness in heart and life. As far as I can tell in Scripture, the only appropriate place for pride is in Jesus' work on our behalf. We can boast in Him, right? That's what we can be proud of. So far as I can tell, we're not supposed to be prideful of ourselves. And these are real warnings for us in Scripture. They're real warnings. When I look at Revelation 18, 21, there's this language about a giant millstone. It says in Revelation 18, 21, Then a mighty angel took up a stone, like a great millstone, and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and be found no more. This is an interesting use of language. Let me tell you where it comes from. The millstone helps with grinding grain for food. It's used as a metaphor in Jeremiah 51. There, in the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah was to be read to the rebels. He was to be read to the ungodly. And then the book itself was to be tied to a stone and thrown off into the Euphrates River as an object lesson, as a visible example of what was going to happen to Babylon for her godlessness, for her as a worldly system. The Lord would bring exhaustion and disaster on her, Jeremiah 51 says. Jesus picking up on the major prophet Jeremiah says the following in Matthew 18, beginning in verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck 
and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life, Jesus said, with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven to have one of these little ones perish. You know, humility is required for the kingdom of God. It's like Danny's prayer of confession earlier in the service from Ezekiel 28, which mirrors the last part of Revelation 18. It's about how little children aren't to be led into sin and about how the wares of this world should not cause us to abandon our biblical precepts. Temptation should not come from us. A little sin leavens the whole lump of bread, the Bible says. So Matthew 18 says we're to practice church discipline and remember mercy when one sinner repents of their sin. We're to go off after one lost sheep and leave the 99 that are safe in the flock. Jesus speaks of the severity of sin in Matthew 18 and the seriousness that we are to take toward excising it. Were it not for grace and mercy, Matthew 18 intimates, causing a little one to follow Babylon into sin would cause, would cause us to, to die. To have a big giant stone tied around our neck, a millstone, and be thrown into a scary sea that apparently the dragon stood beside in Revelation 12. So a big application here is to take worldliness, sin, seriously because we take our Savior seriously. You think, you know, Pastor Matt, you've labored on and on for dozens of minutes about worldliness and sin. I think we got the picture. I'm convinced by the metrics that it's hard for us to get the picture. I'm convinced by the metrics that I and you, that we, we don't see sin the way God sees it. Because all of us in our sin have fallen short of the glory of God. And I'm convinced that we don't count the cost of that salvation. That the wages for the sins that you have committed warrants death, hell, and eternal separation from God. That it's only through the free gift of God that you cannot earn or purchase that you would have eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I'm convinced we don't know the cost that put Jesus on the Christ, uh, Jesus Christ on the cross. I'm convinced we don't know the severity of sin. And we are prone to continue to pursue the benefits of God, devoid of the worship of God, if we do not count the cost today. Revelation 18 is for us. It's for our perseverance and our witness, as it warns us about worldliness. Revelation tells us not to partner or to admire or to doubt the fate of the wicked. Revelation 18 brings promises to us as God's people as he calls us out to be distinct from the world in which we live. Even as we enjoy the benefits for where we live, we are called to recognize, as Jesus said, that his kingdom will come and his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven.
So let us take heart. Our Christ has overcome the world. Let us worship him together today in this coming week. Let us take about a half minute to conclude this message, to consider how these words might sink deep down into our core and cause our lives to be different because of it.